and you hit the record button, and that's how you start a podcast, if you're making it. I'm SJ, the word burglar. This is Weekend at Berkey's episode 23. It's 23 already. I always say that, but I'm always amazed for some reason. <laughs> Even though I've uh, I've been on every one of my episodes, so it's uh, it should really be no surprise to me. We're back at you. Hope Nicholson is here this weekend. Oh my gosh, it's it's leading up to Fan Expo. If you are going to Fan Expo, you might have noticed Now Magazine had Angel Catbird on the cover. Hope is going to talk about that comic and how she's associated with it. And Beat Mason's dropping that beat in the background. I'm just feeling really, really good. We're dropping this a little bit later than we had originally hoped. I just got back from an awesome some uh, cottage weekend with a good pal of mine, Peter Project, who some of you may be familiar with. Peter and I and uh, a couple of our good friends went to this cottage this weekend, and I'm going to tell you really quick because this is a great story about how humans can be super cool. Friday, Peter picks up uh, Mili Sashimi and myself, and we're on our way to the cottage to meet some friends. And we've, we've got this big plan that we're gonna we're gonna party and, and have a great cottage weekend, hit the water, do all kinds of stuff, and play eight bit Nintendo on Peter Project's personal projector, <laughs> the Peter Project projector. Uh, old school, 8-bit, NES. This is what we're talking. So we uh, we packed up a bunch of games. I brought some games. NARC, of course, had to do that. Brought Mega Man 2, Bionic Commando, Super Mario 2, Double Dragon 2, the, a, a bunch of the 2s, Baseball Stars, which is one of my favorite NES baseball games. We had we had a whole bunch of games. Tetris. So we're psyched. We're going up the cottage. Cottage drives about a three-hour drive. We're in the car, we're talking about how psyched we're going to be and if we're still good at certain games, etc., etc. And then we're about, uh, well, I guess we're about 80% of the way there. And Peter realizes he brought the projector, he brought the screen, we brought the games, he brought the Nintendo, but he didn't bring controllers. What? So we're going to be at this week, this cottage all weekend long without Nintendo controllers. It was just like this instant uh, fear came over us. Like, oh, what are we going to do? We're not going to be able to play Nintendo. He comes up with the idea. He says, wait, the cottage area that we're going to, there is a community Facebook forum where everyone who is in this sort of area around this lake that we were going to be at uh they post things and updates about stuff like if people are littering on the beach or if there's people are being too noisy or if there's cool things happening well, i don't know i don't i'm not i don't i don't have a cottage i don't know what type of stuff happens on a cottage community facebook page i'm just this is purely speculation you you get what i'm saying so peter says you know what i'm gonna post on this facebook page and just Put out a Hail Mary and see, hey, does anyone possibly have old school 1980s 8-bit NES Nintendo controllers? And we'll see what happens. So we get to the cottage. We Pete puts the message up on Facebook and says, uh, and says, hey, friends, I need your help. We've planned this awesome weekend of Nintendo gaming, and we don't have controllers. Sure enough, about an hour later... A dude named Jim responds, and he says he's got two controllers, no compensation needed, come by, pick them up whenever you want. Is that amazing or what? So sure enough, next morning, we went to his place via boat, which was pretty cool. Picking up, we 
know, we were on this mission. We were these adults in a boat going across a lake to a mystery stranger's home uh, with the promise of Nintendo controllers being uh, there when we got there. We didn't know what what to expect. Was this guy luring us over? Was had he just been waiting? Like I was trying to, we we're thinking of ideas. Like was this guy like held on to these Nintendo controllers for years and years in the hopes that one day somebody would need his help? Well, that day was this weekend, and we got the controllers. We had an amazing time playing Nintendo games, and I'm all psyched because I'm still really good. A lot of those games. I hadn't played them in years. But uh, Mario 2, actually, I was surprised that I knew where all the mushrooms were when you go over to that dream world, you know, when you smash the potion to the people who know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm saying when you, you cross over into that strange world. It's spooky. Mario 2, when's the last time you played Mario 2? Yeah, it's it's kind of creepy. The weird little guys who walk back and forth. And the music, the music actually gets repeated a lot, but it's still really creepy. The masks that, that the guys wear going back and forth, and then the floating masks that chase you whenever you get uh, the key. You, you, when you drop down into the, into the weird snake baskets. And then when you're digging up the sand and you're digging yourself deeper and deeper underground, I'm starting to get a little claustrophobic, actually, thinking about it. And then you're under this weird place and the, and the snakes with the three heads and the mouse with the sunglasses is throwing bombs at you. It's out of control. And the pink guy who shoots his own eggs at your face and then you have to throw them back at his belly so he drops the glowing crystal ball. It's crazy, man. It's crazy. But it's a good crazy. Yeah. Super Mario 2. Go play it. It's 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 a real fun adventure. <laughs> Hope Nicholson is here. She is a comic book everythinger. She does it all. We're going to talk about her experiences doing editing, uh, kickstartering, writing, finding, publishing, supporting, doing everything uh, to get comic books off the ground. She is a huge, huge comic fan, and uh, you know I love that because we get to geek out about all kinds of stuff and use that special knowledge that we have and only get to share with special people like yourself. So thanks for tuning in. If you've got any questions for me or the podcast or anything, music, comic books, shoot us a message, weekend at burgies at gmail.com. We're doing the mailbag episode on 25. It's been an amazing summer, guys. And I can't believe it is uh, almost at an end. So uh, to end the summer, we always do a big show at the Horseshoe Tavern in Toronto. So it's called Nerd Noise Night, in case you're not familiar with it. It's on the Saturday night right after Fan Expo. So if you're at Fan Expo during the day, make sure you come by the Horseshoe. You can catch myself, more or less. Peter Project's going to be there. Hervana's going to be there. Uh, And, of course, the Cybertronic Spree are going to be there. And it's... It's going to be crazy. Johnny Headband's going to be there as well. But you know the Cybertronic Spree, right? I know you do. And if you're going to be at Fan Expo, I'll be there on Saturday and Sunday during the day. I've got a booth with the Cybertronic Spree. I'll be there. I'll have albums. I'll have t-shirts. I've got the comic book, the last paper route. We've got issue one. Remember, issue two is dropping in the fall. So uh, come by and just say, hey, what's up? I hope to see you there. Other than that, Toronto, I'll be at Lee's Palace September 29th. I'll be in Halifax on October 8th for the Channel Halifax vinyl release party. 
That's right, we're putting out a 7-inch record for Channel Halifax. The B-side has got cream of wheat on it. This is the first time I'm announcing it right here, I just realized. Check out Black Buffalo Records, blackbuffalorecords.ca. They're going to be releasing this 7-inch, and I'm super psyched because the Channel Halifax video will be coming out shortly. And that's going to be dropping hopefully mid-September, so stay tuned to that. As always, check out wordburglar.com. For all your news about stuff like this. And thanks for listening to me yammer on. I just want to dive right into this show right now. Hope is awesome. So thanks again to Hope for coming by. And you're going to enjoy it. So stick around and uh, hang out with us right now. Weekend at Burgies with Hope Nicholson. ask me like how I discovered comics but I mean that's a hard question for me to answer because it's like asking how you discover television or movies or books yeah it's just like it's there and I liked it but um I guess the different thing is with comics people always like expect you to stop and I was just like no no I want to keep reading these so yeah yeah exactly you never grow out of them it's like why would I stop reading something that I've always loved no they're great and uh, I was telling Ivan earlier who's hanging out with us um, that I get hey Ivan <laughs> I get uh, I got really obsessive about things when I was a kid um, so comics were definitely one of those things where I was like yes alright I need to own every single issue of this arc I need to know exactly what happens next and then when the internet came I was able to actually like obsessively research things on like fan pages and web rings and official websites and yeah just kind of like all exploded from there what were some of the earliest comics that you really loved i mean i read a lot of disney and archie comics which are probably the first ones but sorry the first uh ones that i got <laughs> obsessed with were probably elf quest for sure elf quest yeah I was just hanging out with uh, Renee Nolt, uh, who's an illustrator doing Handmaid's Tale with Margaret Atwood, who lives in Victoria. And I've never actually discovered another ElfQuest like, super fan. And I, I totally nerd credit her. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry. You say you're a fan, but I mean, did you have all the graphic novels? She's like, yeah. I'm like, well, did you have all the novelizations and Blood of Ten Chiefs anthology series? She's like, yeah. I'm like, did you have the calendar? She's like, yeah, they were really sexy. I'm like, yeah, they were so sexy. <laughs> they were so sexy. And then we, uh, we just got like obsessively like nerding out about it. And it was this amazing moment where my, my really in-depth knowledge of this uh, massive comic book universe uh, was appreciated and responded to outside of like the internet. So it was a really good moment. That's such a great feeling when you find someone else that really does share like on that level when you're like, oh man, because you, you might have been used to geeking out about ElfQuest with people who may not have been able to really get. No, like a lot of people were like, oh right? yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the, it's really important that it was created by a woman. I'm like, yes, but I really <laughs> want to talk about how hot some of the characters are right now. And there's like... <laughs> You guys just don't appreciate it on that kind of superficial level like I do. Yeah, I remember ElfQuest being, they were, I remember, I think I first saw it in sort of, they were oversized books, maybe like the size yeah, of like, like, like uh, the Tantan books and stuff. Yeah, they had the the black and white magazines. That was how they were first published in the 1970s. Then they moved on to like giant uh, graphic novel collections that were like colored. And those, they've, they've had like, I mean, Renee, we're talking about all the different colorizations through the years. 
Uh, we both prefer the very first ones, um, even though the authors actually don't like those. So they've had like six different colorizations, I think, um, since they were originally produced, which is kind of crazy. Now, I always love it. I think I talked about it when Cal Johnston was on the podcast. Mm-hmm. We It came up and we were talking about uh, Richard and Wendy Peeney, how they met through a Silver Surfer In the letter page. page. Yeah. 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 Which is so cool because that's a really early example of fandom I, this was obviously pre-internet, you know, back in like the late 60s, I guess it would have been. And Wendy wrote in, I mean, I'm sure you probably know the story better than I do, but Wendy wrote a letter to Silver Surfer and Richard read it and then responded because yeah, they published they used her address. To, they used to publish everyone's address back in the day, which um, it's cool because like they want to encourage people to write to each other. And for some reason, I don't think a lot of stories came out of harassment or anything like that. It ended up just being like people geeking out together. And every so often, yeah, romance would bloom as well. But it really was mostly just about like making friends with people who loved other things. Yeah, I heard she got a lot of letters from that, <laughs> from writing that letter. And Richards was the only one she responded to. Oh, which okay. Is, yeah, Makes which sense. to me is really awesome because then they went on to create ElfQuest together, and it's it's had a, a healthy elf life. <laughs> it's oh, that's a good pun. Yeah, well, yeah. why not? Yeah, elves live a long time, right? They do live a long time. Yeah. They live a very long time. <laughs> See, I, I know some elves. I know some elfish. I'm down yeah. with the elves. That's I, good. I never really read, I think I read it maybe one or two issues of ElfQuest as a kid, but I definitely remember being around and had a bunch of different publishers too. I think like Epic published it for a while. It did. Marvel Epic and, was how I first discovered it. Um, so I first discovered it in the color editions that were published. Uh, they basically took the old black and white comics and then split them up into like basically three comics-ish to like every like one of the regular magazine issues and colored it and released it with ads and everything through Epic. And uh, I remember I had the third issue and was like um, Cutter, who's chief of the Wolf Riders, riding down into the Sun Village and like sweeping one of like the villagers off the feet and they like, they don't fall in love, but they fall in like immediate lust. And I was like, what is this? This is amazing. What's going to happen next? And uh, I wasn't able to find like issue four for I think like another year. That is the true comic it's, collector's it's dilemma. Always how it happens, yeah. yeah. So I think it's I read issue yeah. four. <laughs> I, I eventually I found issue one next. No, sorry, issue six, and then eventually I found issue one and two. So I was able to slowly, slowly piece it together. But it took me a long time to find issue four. I don't know why it was so. And what was it about ElfQuest that you loved? Was it sort of the ongoing saga? Was it the characters? Was it the dialogue? The artwork? The artwork's amazing. Like, the artwork is just drop-down gorgeous. Um, Like, I don't think there's any artist as good as Wendy Pinney is at consistent characterizations through all of her stories. And just, like, the roundness of the characters, but also the beauty of the male characters, which you don't really come across. Like, a lot of times when male characters are drawn, it's, like, it's, like, very... Uh, machismo like uh big big muscles and oversized thing and they think oh yeah girls like that it's like no no so they had more slender characters they had like very sensual male characters which you know even though i was eight i was like what are these feelings i'm feeling (laughs) (laughs) and they're very distinct too like that's when i think elf quest on top of being its own storyline it really had a defined art style everyone sort of had like the slightly bigger heads the smaller bodies they were kind of younger but older and they all looked like they belonged in that universe. So if somebody drew ElfQuest that wasn't in that style, it didn't really look like ElfQuest. Yeah, it was. Uh, it actually is weird because I can't think of any other Marvel or sorry, any other universe where I'd be like so upset having someone else draw it. But like the visual style is such 
an intrinsic part of that series that mm-hmm. it's really hard to read. People have um, drawn things. Uh, when they started to branch off, I think, in the 90s, and they went on with like seven different titles, all with different artists and writers. Um, and it was kind of disconcerting. Like, it was definitely weird to read. And I'm glad that they've gone back to just like the, the regular creator ownership. So, cool. Although yeah, I haven't really caught up with many of the recent issues. Yeah, well, I guess, and they do still own it then. Yeah. But they've never done a movie or anything. There's not really been, oh. (laughs) They've tried. Okay. Over and over and over again, they've tried. But uh, with TV shows, they had, um, they were trying to do a deal with Nelvana Animation back in the day, the Canadian company, whose name is based on the 1940s Canadian female superhero. What a wonderful segue. I know, isn't it? Into Nelvana. Mm Mm-hmm. Nelvana, your the book that you helped Kickstarter. Was that one of the first Kickstarters? You that did? was my very first Kickstarter. Yeah, okay. just right after Kickstarter uh, became accessible to Canadians. Well, let let our audience know what uh, what do they need to know about Nelvana? Okay, well, in the 1940s, they banned American comic books from entering Canada, so we had to create our own. And because uh, no one was very good at printing and publishing, um, especially comic books, they decided to do them in black and white. Just all the publishers that started to pop up. There was a few in Toronto, in Vancouver, in Montreal. And Nelvana was a character published as part of the Triumph comic book series that was published in Toronto. And she was an Inuit demigoddess who used the powers of the Northern Lights to fight Nazis and interdimensional aliens and evil fur trappers and all sorts of fun stuff. And then she vanished after the end of World War II. And then you discovered Nelvana. I know we've talked about it before, but it, was it through the library or something where you first discovered it? Uh, <laughs> you know what? Honestly, it was probably through Wikipedia. I was back when I was in my university days doing my undergrad, so probably about 2006. And uh, I was always obsessed with doing anything I could relate to comics. So I was doing something on, uh, you know... Um, history of Canadian media. They were like, pick a media and like discuss the history and aspects of my like, comics, comics or media, right? Yeah, absolutely. So that's when I found out and I known about Alpha Flight and Captain Canuck a bit, um, but I didn't know anything about these 1940s characters at all. And when I discovered that just through like looking up Canadian comic history, and I think I found the, uh, govern- the Wikipedia, but also the government of Canada had a website about it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is amazing. What is this? And I started talking to everyone and no one had a clue. The only guy who knew anything to talk about it with me was Mark Asquith. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> Friend of the podcast and uh, comic book guru. For yeah, sure. he's pretty much uh, incredibly integral to Canadian comic book history, um, to comic book history in general, really. And I had been interning because this was back in the day when I thought I was going to be a big shot TV producer at book TV and he was at space and I wandered over to space and I'm like, Hey, you guys like comic books? (laughs) He's like, yeah. I'm like, what do you know about 1940s comic books? He's like, Oh, well I have several of them. I'm like, you have some of them. Can I see them? And then for years or not years, but like for the next year, he promised he was going to bring them in and he never did. And I was so angry and frustrated (laughs) at that. Cause I couldn't read any of these comics. Um, and then I discovered like hidden microfiche that was like in the library of Canada's archives or something back when I moved back to Winnipeg a few years later. And uh, I ordered it and I was able to actually read all of the stories for the first time ever. And I became just like when I was a kid obsessive about collecting scans of every single story, especially of Nelvana of the Northern Lights. Um, So I'd go and uh, spend hours after work just digitizing these microfiche so I could read them. That's awesome. And what was it about Nelvana that you really liked? 
I like the fact that she was definitely like one of the first female characters that was huge. Uh, the Inuit connections were really important to me because there's not many um, characters who represent indigenous cultures in comics and definitely none that do a good job of it. It seems to be like the last, one of the, the big barriers uh, towards representation in comics is that people don't know how to write native characters or Inuit characters without resorting to stereotypes and like making them magical and like combining seven different cultures into one and calling it progressive uh, or hiring like a creepy writer to write their comics, which I don't recommend Marvel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hiring creepy people to, uh, to do anything is usually not encouraged. No, but. it's it's not a good idea. It's hard sometimes. Cause uh, especially when you don't know the reputations and that, yeah. um, because it's not like, you know, it's blast on everyone's forehead. But uh, with that one, like, people definitely knew. And you definitely should be always very cautious about hiring, you know, a white writer to write a character. And he was, this, this is Red Wolf in particular I'm talking about, um, so far outside their culture, especially in a situation where there hasn't been a good history of representation. So that was that was pretty upsetting when they did that. And when it came out and, you know, he was based on a, a fictional tribe. It's like, really, guys? Just so that if you make any mistakes, you can just like gloss over it because mm. it's fictional. Well, That's Marvel fun. does that. I mean, there's like Wakanda, which is like yeah. a made-up country as well, and and all that. Um, but back to Nelvana really quick because she was one of the first Canadian oh, yeah, comic book. No, no, it's I went great. on a tangent. No, it's all good. That's what we do. Just hang I knew out. I was gonna yell at like someone <laughs> in the comics industry during this podcast. No, well, with Nelvana, what fascinated me, I think I first heard of her when there was a stamp. There was, yeah. like a, there was the Canadian comic book stand. In the 1990s. Yeah, and w- one of my relatives actually was like, oh, Sean likes comic books. Uh, here, <laughs> here's these Canadian stamps. And there was, yeah, Superman, Captain Canuck, and then a couple other characters that were kind of like, who are these people? And, yeah, Fleur de Lis. Uh, yeah. And from Northgard. Mm-hmm. And yeah, Nelvana and Johnny Canuck, which is, yeah. is, I don't know, is Johnny Canuck the first Canadian? No, born? Iron Man is. Was there an Iron Man, like in the 1800s or something? Or uh, No, Iron Man was the first 1940s um, Canadian comic book character. He could breathe underwater, and he fought Nazis with the help of children. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Always putting the kids to, uh, to use to stop those Nazis. That yeah, a, I mean, what else are kids useful for other than to be put in the path of ever-present danger? Well, so you were reading stuff, you discovered Nelvana, and yeah. you basically knew, was this sort of around the time that you were like, I'm going to pursue a life related to comic books? No. No? <laughs> no, I just loved comics. Uh, I mean, I, I stopped reading them briefly back in junior high or high school because uh, I was kind of like embarrassed and I like sold all my ElfQuest or tried to at least at garage sales <sighs> and online and everything. And like a year later or something, I was like, I miss them so much. I just, I couldn't be away from them. And I started to buy them all back. And I didn't have much money at the time. So I would go on eBay and like just try to buy as many like sets as I could. And eventually I managed to build the collection back up. Awesome. So that was really important. And from that point on, I was like, I will never, ever sell my comics again. Yeah. That's when you know you really appreciate it. I mean, I've you know, you see, I've got so many comics as well. And I yeah, find it like you. some stuff I'm just like, <laughs> I'm like, ah, I don't know if I could get rid of this because I'll never find it again. And then some things it's like, yeah. But that's when you, yeah. you, you realize how much you do appreciate it. And do you think that sort of comes, because what I see with Bedside Press mm-hmm. And sort of what you've been doing with Nelvana and I guess Brock Windsor, I notice a trend in 
you're you're preserving nostalgia in a weird way, and like you have an appreciation for nostalgia. And I think we all do as comic book lovers, and certainly with the histories of every whether it's characters or publishers or creators. You know, I'm a big nostalgia fan too. Like, do you find like when you started Bedside Press, were you was your goal to just say, hey, I don't want this stuff to disappear, so I need to bring it back up to the forefront? Because if you don't, no one else will, in a way. Did you feel yeah, that? Yeah, uh, that, was, that was a big part of it. Um, I was hoping someone else would do it for the longest time. Yeah. After I discovered these characters, even when I was doing the microfiche, I was like waiting for someone else to like be able to do restoration, because I never had any idea that I'd be able to, well, do anything, to be honest. I've always been more of a follower than a, than an actual leader or anything. And I, would, I was getting frustrated, because I'm like, I know where these comics are held. Like I've talked to these private collectors on forums and in emails and I uh, had decided to pitch a movie about it and it weirdly enough didn't get picked up, but another one very similar did. So I like jumped ships and joined up with this other documentary. That was Lost Heroes? That was Lost Heroes. Yeah. Yeah, And uh, so Lost Heroes, uh, a lot of people think that like I developed the concept, but it was just weirdly parallel to the same concept I was developing in the same city. And for our listeners at home, Lost Heroes was... Lost Heroes is a documentary film about the history of the Canadian superhero in comics uh, throughout history. My original um, pitch for my project had been the history of Canadian comics from the beginning. So a bit different, like superheroes being a genre and comics being a medium. Um, But I was more than happy to, to do that. And... Finding all the scans of the comics through archives and through private collections, which is a huge part of documentary, I realized that uh, after a bit, I'm like, well, I guess I could put this together. Yeah. <laughs> like, at the worst, I have all the microfiche, which would be a shitty uh, replication, but it would be accessible at least. And I'd already, like, started sharing out my microfiche with, like, other fans I'd known, um, either selling it online or just, like, giving it away to people I liked. And so I was like, all right, well... And then Kickstarter came and I really was excited and saw my friends like using Kickstarter to make films. And I thought maybe I could make a book out of this. And I, I never done anything in publishing like at all, but I had friends who had worked in publishing and uh, there was a girl I know who liked Nilvana too, Rachel Ritchie. And so we decided to do it together. Um, and it was, it was a difficult process, but you know what? I, I discovered I had a knack for it and we reprinted every single issue of Nilvana Northern Lights and I taught myself restoration so I could repair all the damage because the comics had been having ink flaked away and they were badly printed in the first place. Wow. What so. did you use for that? Like Photoshop or just? I, I used a, uh, a Photoshop knockoff called Paint Shop Pro because uh, I'm bad at learning new things. And that's the only photo editing software that I've used in like the last 20 years. So. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So finding all the microfiche, I mean, I can only imagine going through it all. Yeah. Well, the microfiche was like the last case scenario, like in case you can find any issues. And we used it on a few cases where the pages were just too damaged to be able to reproduce them from the original scans. Um, the original artwork having long since been lost for most of the comics. So I just hunted down private collectors and asked them what comics they had, if they'd be willing to scan it. Either I could come to their place and scan them. Or uh, they could send me scans, which a lot of them did. And I contacted universities and did the same thing. Yeah, it was it was a lot of work. Um, like more work than I've done for anything ever, but it worked out. That's awesome. That's really cool about just bringing back 
And with Brock Windsor, actually, I had a question. Yeah. In the book, there's a story illustrated by Scott Chandler, which yes. is awesome. And that was like a lost story that had never been published, It had right? never been published. So Brock Windsor was actually much more difficult than Nelvana, because Nelvana, in terms of 1940s Canadian comic books, is like the most famous as you said, she was on a stamp and like they named an animation company after her and they did microfiche. So at least all of her adventures were available. Brock Windsor. No, there's no microfiche of Brock Windsor's adventures. There's no company named after him. There's no long legacy. He was just kind of completely lost. Yeah. Well working, I mean, you know, I've worked at two different comic shops, shout out strange adventures <laughs> and silver snail and both really good comic shops, great comic shops, great people. And I I would always come across weird comics that I'd never heard of. And, and like you, I'd always be sort of like checking, oh, what's this? I find these sort of obscurities really interesting. So yeah, after working at the shops, I, I think I came across Brock Windsor once maybe. And I didn't even know, I don't know if it was like a passing reference to it or somebody mentioned it or I came across it in a magazine or well, I something. I see you have a Connect Comics over here. Yes. Um, and so there would be a, Bit of mention in that. There's also the Great Canadian Comic Books, which was a 1970s history. Yeah, was it a big they like didn't yellow really book? Yeah, yeah. I feel yeah. like that may have been, but it was just sort of a name. And then when I heard you were doing the Kickstarter for it, I was like, "That's cool." Yeah, and really fascinating. So he was a comic character from Winnipeg, right? Yeah, actually, yeah. that was uh, that was a really neat connection that I. So I just picked Brock Windsor because when I was doing Lost Heroes. There was this character that was made brief mention of, and all I knew of him at the time was that this was the character that was popular in Vancouver because uh, Maple Leaf Publishing was a Vancouver-based uh, um, publisher in the 1940s, and Rock Windsor was like the the star of their stable. Um, but uh, that's it. That's all I knew. And I had like one or two splash pages, and I'm like, okay, he looks pretty cool. He's canoeing. This looks like fun. He had like a really <laughs> neat outfit on that was like a halter top. That's a criteria top. for a coolness. Yeah. yeah. A guy in a canoe. All right. Let's That's do it. it. I'm like halter top canoe. This is great. It's fantastic. <laughs> I love it. Um, and so I knew nothing about it other than that because there was no information about him. So I just met up with his family. Um, so I tracked down his original, the family of the original creator. Met up with them. And I said, look, would you even be interested in this? And they're like, um, yeah, sure be great because I always like to ask permission of the states before I do any project I did the same thing with Nelvan and Northern Lights and the state of the creator Adrian Dingle uh, as well as copyright holders which were different for Nelvana and uh, so for Brock Windsor I then collected a few stories from collectors just to see if I could get myself behind it because I find it really hard to promote content that I don't like and when I got the scans I was like oh these are really good like the artwork is amazing the story is super super good and eventually, as I started putting together the collection, I discovered that there was Winnipeg Connections, which was amazing to me because I'm from Winnipeg, and I had no idea. So the characters from Winnipeg, the uh, creator lived in Winnipeg, and through some use of, uh, of in-depth research, I discovered that there was a guy named Brock Windsor in Winnipeg who was an expert at Lake of the Woods, which is where the adventures of Brock Windsor take place. And that's who inspired the comic. Pretty much. And the weird thing is, Brock Windsor's family knows nothing about John Stables, the creator of uh, Brock Windsor. And John Stables' family knows nothing about the... They knew that Brock Windsor was a real person, but their dad had told him he had died in the war. Turns out Brock Windsor's business partner died in the war. So there's always miscommunication, I find, with history, which is frustrating, but it can be fun to like discover the truth. It's so interesting. And the fact that you are from Winnipeg 
it was almost as if there was some weird elven magic that was calling uh-huh. you to unearth this old comic book. Exactly. <laughs> Just uh, it, I love Nelvana Northern Lights, but um, her artwork's kind of uneven. Her stories go up and down. And they're very much like just a series of unconnected adventures. Mm-hmm. But Brock Windsor just has like this amazing pulp style to it. And the artist um, plays with panel layouts and things that you don't see in comic books from that time period. Mm-hmm. Like he knew the medium of comics better than almost anyone else did, in my opinion. And it came through. And the story, when you read it, you wouldn't have any idea it was supposed to be a serialized like adventure because it flows seamlessly through the whole thing. Wow. Now that actually leads me to another question with the Kickstarters, because both mm-hmm. of those were really successful and the end products were, are fantastic. They're great. If people listening, definitely check them out. What I was curious was... If they could find them. They're out of print now. Oh, wow. Oh, well. <laughs> well actually, Nelvana was picked up by IDW Publishing. So Sweet. Yeah. Well, this is what I want to ask. Do you, did you find with those two particular Kickstarters, was the general audience did you find they were older comic book fans because i'm just i was wondering when they were coming out like to me as a comic book lover of just all genres and medium like everything you know history i find it very interesting Mm -hmm. but to sort of a younger newer audience did you find that nelvana and brock windsor were appealing to those or was it more just sort of older comic fans who were really interested uh it was mostly actually people who had never heard of Nelvan and Brock Windsor, so that was really cool. There were some people who had been fans and collectors, uh, but they made up a pretty small percentage because not many people knew about these characters. Mostly it was people who were just like really excited and interesting. Uh, for age range, it's hard because Kickstarter doesn't give you those demographics, mm. but I would estimate it to be between like 25 and, I don't know, 35, 40 yeah. years old. Cool. Well, I mean, there's cool stories associated with both of those books. So it's, it's, yeah. I think that well, does draw people in. The neat thing, too, I discovered after I published Nelvana between the first and second volume, or sorry, the first volume and then the reprint by IDW was that Nelvana was a real person as well. Um, and her name is actually pronounced Nelvana. Interesting. And yeah, she was a um, young Inuit woman living in the Northwest Territories in uh, Coppermine, which is now Kukluktuk, none of it. And I met her granddaughter, who's also named Nelvana. Wow. And she's studying like land claims at the University of Ottawa. And she was in a parade during Guelph, dressed up as like the character her, you know, that was based on her grandma and was like this it was beautiful. It was it was so incredibly fulfilling because all these other stories have been told about Nelvina. Some people have thought that she was based on a a mythic witch like figure because the uh, writer Adrian Jingle had mixed up the stories that he had heard from Franz Johnston, who was uh had first discovered her. What did she exactly do to inspire those? She was stories? pretty. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. That's it. Yeah, no, she um she was a mother yeah. and she raised a happy family and she was dedicated to them above all else. And I don't think there's anything more heroic than that. Not at all. No, that's fantastic. That's a really neat thing. So with Kickstarter, because you've gone on to have a lot of successes, Secret Loves of Geek Girls, uh-huh. uh Moonshot, I mean, mm-hmm. so many. You've got a new one. Fashion in Action. Fashion in yep. Action. What do you find? I know you've been asked this a million times. <laughs> I don't want to bore you with this, but what really does go into making a good Kickstarter? The biggest thing I recommend from people is uh, whenever someone says they want to do Kickstarter, ask them, have you pledged other Kickstarter campaigns? And a lot of times they say, oh, no. And I'm like, okay, well, it's not about making yourself look good by pledging to these, but it's so that you can get an idea of what work other people put into it 
what you like about their communication, what draws you to campaigns. And then you can mirror that when you do your own campaign. And that's the biggest thing. Uh, if you like look at how you hear about these, did you hear about it by Twitter? Well, then maybe you should be using Twitter and other kinds of social media to promote your projects as well. What annoys you about Kickstarters? Is there too much communication? Is it that there's not enough information on the page? Do you not trust the creators? Well, that's then stuff that you have to prove that you're trustworthy and relatable when you do your Kickstarter. So, Those are great tips. So I've always wondered with Kickstarters because, I mean, I've always sort of, I've done my own self-publishing and self-released albums and stuff like that. And I've done a few uh, like fundraisers just with, with t-shirt fundraiser campaigns and things like that. And I love Kickstarter and, and you've got a great foundation that you've been building with. I wonder sometimes though if it, could have a negative effect for some artists where just in the way where they won't make their art unless they get funded as opposed to just making their art by any means necessary and then mm. putting it out there to people and just being like, I'm going to make the art first and then I'm going to go out and see if it will stand on its own legs and find its own way as opposed to doing like a pre-order say, I'm going to only make this if I get it funded. And in that regard does it hurt an artist's creativity or do artists like are people starting to become too reliant on kickstarters i don't know are we getting well too- i think uh i probably am not the right person to give an opinion on this because i'm a publisher first and foremost so for me there's no point in making a product if it's not sellable like uh if no one wants to pick up nelvan and northern lights why would i spend months and months of all this backbreaking work i have them in my microfiche i can read the stories fine um, but why am I going to spend all this work to do something that I'm not going to see like any anything come back to me? Um, not that I want to make a profit. I haven't made a profit on most of these books. But I certainly don't want to end up in a financial loss. I don't want to beggar myself. And I don't expect any other creative to do as well. If you can do something like a webcomic and put it online, well, then there's other ways to monetize it too. You're building your reputation. You can sell merchandise. Um you can do advertisements. There's other ways to make it worth your while. But I don't know. Um, art for art's sake is something that every artist has to decide on their own. But for me, I just don't ever want to be in a position where my life is uh, uh, negatively affected too much by the kind of products I want to make. Yeah. Well, from your perspective and as a publisher, like you said, I think it's great. And what's awesome about this, the books that you've been putting out they're great concepts. They're great ideas. And I see that you're like, all right, if enough people agree with me that this is a great idea, we're going to make it real. Yeah. And and that's kind of what you've been doing. Like the secret loves of geek girls. That had Was that your most successful? That was definitely my most <laughs> successful Kickstarter. So what was that about for the people who don't know it? Secret loves geek girls was my first foray into, well, not quite, uh, but it was my first major foray into non-archival projects. So Secret Loves Geek Girls is an anthology collection of prose and illustrated stories and comic stories that are all true stories about love, sex, dating, affection, and lust by women who are geeks. So fangirls, cosplayers, comic book creators, uh, webcomic creators, video game designers, and journalists, and the like. And Margaret Atwood. And Margaret Atwood. Yeah. Yeah, she's done some stuff. 
She's won a couple of awards, written she's, a few things. She's a good comics writer. I had no idea she <laughs> was into comics until you started doing this campaign. And now I know you're working with her. So how like was she a comic book fan growing up? Oh, yeah. You, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, in fact, that's what her story in Secret Loves Geek Girls is about, is her being really into comics when she was, you know, as soon as she could learn how to read. And I think to her, there's not much difference between comics and other forms of, of literature, like prose. And she's just never really had the opportunity to get into making comics herself because she doesn't consider herself to be a great artist. So she's done comic strips for newspapers in the 1970s. And she did some um, to kind of promote her book tour a few like decades ago. And she did some for Secret Loves. Um, but she has never worked with an artist to do um, a full book. And so she came up to me with an idea and said she really wanted to do a comic book. She wanted to find an artist and she knew that I knew the industry and wanted to know if uh, I could help her out. So that's how our latest project came about. Yeah, t- I love the title. What's uh, Angel Catbird. Angel Catbird. Yep. The design is awesome. That's Johnny yeah. Christmas is doing it, right? Yes, Johnny Christmas is amazing. He did uh, Sheltered. He did. Yeah, and, great uh, series with Ed Brisson, yeah. another f- friend of the podcast. And he's actually writing and drawing his own uh, series for Image right now that's coming out through the Island Anthology called... Um, Firebug, and it's about a volcano goddess and like a matriarchal society. So it's uh, it's pretty great, actually. Okay, well, staying with the Margaret Atwood <laughs> project. So that's coming out through Dark Horse Comics? Yeah, in September. Cool. And what can you tell us about Angel Catbird? Because that's... It, the name is awesome. Okay, I'll give it up to Margaret Atwood just for that alone. I think that people are thinking when they see Margaret Atwood is doing comic, they think of her... Serious dystopian novels, uh, maybe, you know, her her free-range poetry or anything like that. But uh, she has a very, very quirky sense of humor. And that comes across in a lot of the interviews if you watch her, but not so much so in her prose a lot of times, unless you look carefully. But for Angel Catbird, she said, I want to make a guy who can turn into a cat and a bird. And the purpose of this, there's, a cat there's, and yeah, a bird. yeah. So in two different, like he's like a triple changer transformer. No, he can only change into like a cat bird hybrid. Okay, so, so he's not like today I'm going to be a cat, tomorrow I'll be a bird. No, it's uh, it's basically like a human cat bird hybrid. Okay, um, cool. But he can change all the way to a bird or a cat. So other characters in the book can. So there's Count Catchula. Okay, who can turn into a bat and a cat. No, just like a cat. Human bat, bat hybrid. He, so, so he's a cat bat. He's a cat bat. He's cat yeah. batman. Cat batman. Yeah. <laughs> she likes puns. I like that. What other are they all cat animal combos? Uh no. Um, in the second book, which we just started working on, so the first book will be released in September. I don't want to spoil it if there's you know. I will dog not horse or spoil fish it lizard. too much. I'll just say that in the first book we're introduced to the hidden cat human society. And in the second book, we learn about the bird-human society. Interesting. Yeah. I read, you're just triggering a weird <laughs> memory of me being in a library in elementary and finding a really weird sci-fi novel about cat people. And There I, was, yeah, I'm trying to remember that it was, one. I think there was like a series. There was maybe like four or five of those books, and now... It was like a whole society of cat people, and I don't know if... I think they had their own planet, and they had really cool painted covers. That does sound familiar, yeah. yeah. You know the weird like YA sci-fi that you 
some librarian would order and then it'd get like stuck on a shelf and no one would read it. Yeah, until, it was always like, like stuff from like the 1970s yeah, I remember yeah, seeing. Yeah, yeah. And then I'd discover and be like, what is this? Okay, now I got to go find it. Yeah. yeah, I don't think that's related. It, it mostly like came out of the fact that she is very passionate about um, birds' lives and cats' lives as well. And her big um, push right now is if you have a cat and you let them outside, you decrease their lifespan and you also are drastically decreasing the songbird population. And so doing a comic like this, she wanted it to give a little bit of info to people reading it, but without it being preachy or educational. Um, so by creating a character that was a cat and a bird, she could like play into elements of how to keep your pet safe while doing like a really exciting adventure book. Interesting. There's yeah. a lot of layers to this. It's a few layers. It's not just a catchy name. No, it's uh, it's in partnership with um, Nature Canada, I believe. Uh, oh, cool. So they're kind of giving some facts in the book as well. I had no idea that it had that whole angle to it. I know. That's, See, that's it's supposed really cool. to sneak that's, uh, in some learning to you like while it. you're enjoying learning about this cat-human society. Well, because in general, cats and birds don't get along. So is that sort of an underlying yes, theme? Yes, that's a huge, huge theme of the book is the fact that the main character has these competing desires. So when he sees like a bird fall over its nest, he doesn't know whether he wants to mother it and protect it or if he wants to eat it. Oh, it's almost a commentary on modern day society. Uh-huh. Okay, so like I <laughs> there are fun um there are elements you can discuss and analyze like that, but by and large it's really meant to be just like a really really fun silly book. Cool. With a lot of cat puns in it. I'm very excited. And Dark yeah. Horse have a great, I mean, they've published great books. I'm really excited to read that. And your capacity, you're the editor on the book? Or? I'm a editor. I'm a not facilitator the facilitator yes. of it. I'm the facilitator. That's a better way of putting it. Yeah. I uh, was pitched the concept by Margaret. She wanted to do it uh, through Kickstarter at first. And I found her an artist. So we went through portfolios, discussed different styles that she liked. And uh, my big push is that I, I like to promote people who are really enthusiastic about the industry and about supporting other people in the industry and who have really good attitudes and who have great communication skills. Because you can be the nice guy in the world. But if you can't respond to emails, then... There's, there's, that's not great. And Johnny was kind of the best person for all of those things. He was incredibly enthusiastic. I remember he stopped me when I was walking down the hall at uh, Emerald City Comic Con. And he said, oh, Hope, um, you'd written me about Rock Windsor. Is it too late to do a pinup? I really would love to. I love the idea of doing all these resurrections, 1940s comic characters. So I'm like, oh, unfortunately, that's finished. And he's like, oh, oh, that's a shame. Here, do you want to have some sheltered comics? And I was reading, I'm like, oh, this is really good stuff. And we'd met before briefly, but that moment I'm like, okay, so his art's great. It's exactly what Margaret's looking for. She's looking for something very energetic and kind of like a superhero vein. She really wanted kind of a masculine type of art style rather than kind of cartoony or soft. And Johnny has that and he has a great attitude and he's so nice and so good to work with. And I have not regretted that decision for a single second. That's awesome. Yeah. And your comics facilitation continues. Yeah. She, uh, she, when she discussed with me, she said that she wanted Angel Catbird to be as widespread as possible, which is when I decided I can do that via Kickstarter. So I uh, put out the word to Image Comics and I didn't really like their communication style. Like they're a bit harder to get a hold of and to, to go through the process of. But I was talking to an editor at Dark Horse, uh, Daniel Shaban, and he was so enthusiastic and he had all these ideas. And I know their distribution is done through Penguin Random House, so they get all of those book sales and book markets. Sure. Yeah. And for me as a publisher, that's that's a huge thing. Yeah. And so 
that's when I decided to go with Dark Horse. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, right now with Image, they've really, obviously, the creator owned, everyone's trying to get in with them and they're doing it. But I'm seeing, you're seeing it spin out into Dark Horse and Boom and Oni and some of these other publishers that do seem to be like really embracing yeah. what, because what Image is doing now, and my friend Dave was sort of talking about this earlier, Dave, shout out Dave Howlett. Image is kind of like what Vertigo was back in the 90s almost in a lot of ways. It is, and- but things are things are also largely untouched at Image, which also for me didn't work with Angel Catbird. Like if you have a book, you kind of are on your a lot on your own for marketing and publicity and um, in terms of, yeah, just getting your book out there and getting the word out there and editing and all that. So they're very much hands-off, which is great if you don't like a lot of people interfering with your stuff. But if you actually prefer going through a traditional publisher and having like a strong editor presence, which I did for this book for sure, because Margaret is newer to comics and I'm newer to publishing comics as well, it's not as good of a fit. Hmm. Well, you... You say you're newer, but I mean, you've been on the scene now for a while. You've been you've been hustling. You've had more success than anyone I can think of in Canada in terms of book publishing. And That's awful. Publishing. No, congratulations to <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. No, you're really you've been really raising the bar high, and it's great to see. And I mean, again, like I've. I remember zines and mini comics in the '90s and self-publishing, and then just seeing like where things have gone and where we've gotten to now, and just what you've been doing. You've really been pioneering this thing, so it's so it's great to see. Like, so whenever I see things popping up when you're associated with the projects, you know, I'm like, it's exciting. And you just opened your first official office, is that right? Yep, I have an office now uh, in downtown Winnipeg. So it's cool. So- I wouldn't, ex- uh, you know, ask anyone to come see it because it's it's small and that, but it's. It's good. Yeah. yeah. So are you looking for new projects like beyond Angel Catbird or are you just sort of focused on that? And Oh, no, you... I'm, I'm doing a million more projects. Well, what else is going on? Yeah. <laughs> uh, what else is going on? I'm doing a prose anthology of indigenous LGBT sci-fi stories. And uh, so that's in the production stage. So I'm just getting all the stories in right now. I have about half of them. Then I'll do editing and move on to the next steps. I'm running a Prairie Comics Festival, which is a huge thing I'm doing that I'm not prepared for at all because I don't know much about event organization. But I thought it would be really important for Winnipeg to have an event focused on the art and literature and business of comics rather than just the pop culture aspect of comics. Um, so that's happening in July. And that'll be pretty, pretty fun. That's exciting. Mm-hmm. Fashion Action, which is a 1980s comic book reprint. So that's in production yeah, as well. let's talk about that for a second. Yeah. So that was... Was that a continuity comic or Comico or who published that? Originally? That was Eclipse, actually. Eclipse, okay. Mm-hmm. So that would have been like what, early 80s or something? Yeah, mid 80s. What's the deal? It, it Like stylistically, it looks awesome. I've, oh, it's I've, great. Yeah. yeah. Eclipse had some amazing comics in the 1980s. Uh, and in fact, I just was, I'd shared an ad I'd saw on some sort of website that was. Um, showcase the the female readership and how Eclipse helped get them back into comics. That was their big push that they were helping people read comics who hadn't read them in years because they were doing things that were not just superheroes. They were, you know, weird comics. They were experimental. They were artistic. Uh, they were dystopian. They were sci-fi. Um, so Eclipse had done a comic called Fashion in Action, which actually ran as a backup feature only in a comic that was a bit more forgettable, <laughs> called Scout. Scout, yeah. yeah. That was uh, Tim... Uh, Tim Truman. Tim Truman, yeah. 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 And uh, I sat next to John K. Snyder the third at a convention when I was just starting off, before I had even any books, back when I was just promoting the Kickstarter for Nelvana. And he was like, oh, I love female uh, comic characters, and I've been trying to promote them 
with a comic I did in the 1980s called Fashion Action, which, and I'm like, okay, let's see it. I expect it to be a TNA comic, to be honest. And I got it, and it was these amazing kind of designer-influenced characters, and they were, they looked rough, and they looked different, and it was in this, you know, futuristic world, and I'm like, this is great. Where can I buy a collection? He's like, oh, it's never been collected. And so that's Enter why. Yeah. Enter Bedside Press. It took two and a half years after that point until we actually managed to launch a Kickstarter campaign. And I wanted to wait on this one in particular because it's a harder sell than the others. It's uh, not about Canadian comic book history. It's not about promoting, you know, um, the voices of feminism. There's no market out when attached. I knew it'd be harder to reach its goal. And so I wanted to wait until I had more of a standing in the industry so that people could trust me and know that it would be a good project. And luckily that happened. That's awesome. And But, you know, I think that's totally in line with your previous stuff as well, though. No, it doesn't have the Canadian thing. No, maybe it's not sort of more like the female perspective, but it's something that you're passionate about and that you think is cool and that you want to share with the world. I mean, it kind of goes yeah. back to like the nostalgia or the the sense of, hey, this is something that I really love and I just want the rest of the world to see it. Yeah, and I just don't when want you believe people to in forget. it, people now have the faith in in your selection as a publisher that like, okay, this is the next thing that you want to bring out. And that's, you know, a big part of like with your Kickstarters and everything and a big part of what I've always loved about comics and being a lifelong comic book lover has been the community. And just working in the comic shops, I mean, a big thing was people coming in and, and people, you know, and I love going to cons and, and hanging out in shops and just talking with people because it's about sharing. It's about sharing the love of comics and that community. And I, I, I see that, again, back with, like, what you're doing and, like, the Kickstarter community and people, like, really rallying behind your publishing. So I guess what I'm saying is, you know, it, comics are all about sharing what you love, and that's how the, the cream sort of rises to the top. Yeah, I mean, even the events I do, it really is all about community. It's about sharing history and making sure that things aren't forgotten, um, but making sure that we have the ability to connect with each other, too. So in addition to the Comics Festival I'm running in July, I also organize events with two amazing women, Sam Bieko and Alicia Fosher, in Winnipeg called Geek Girl Social Nights, which are, you know, we get together and... You know, over 50 people came to our very first event, just women who were just desperate and really needed to connect with other people who loved video games and comics. That's awesome. Do you find now the female fandom is really, I mean, it's obviously what I'm seeing is they're way more present and visible just in everything now, which is fantastic because I've always known girls who've loved comics mm -hmm. and just seeing and I, I totally understand that there's, you know, there have been times where it's not been the most inclusive, whether in what it's, has been published or whether it's within the fandom itself. And what do you see right now? Is, do you see a positive shift in things? I see us as repairing many decades of damage. And I think we're getting to a place where we are almost as accepting of female fans as we were at the beginning of comics. A big thing about what I do is, is promoting history, and I'm actually writing a book right now on comic book history and female representation um, for Quirk Books. So that's coming out next year, I think. That's exciting, because Quirk do a lot of cool things. They do. They, they do, do Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, yeah. right? They did Sam Mag's Fangirl's Guide to the yeah. Galaxy and her upcoming uh, Wonder Woman Cool. Book. Shout out Sam. Yeah, mm -hmm. cool. Sam's great. Yeah. And she also wrote a story in Secret Loves Geek Girls. Yeah. So I'm, uh, I'm very fond of her. And... 
how busy she is keeps me really energetic and focused on building myself. It's like the only good form of jealousy that exists when you see another friend doing something cool and you're like, oh, this is great. Now I could do something cool too. And you get pumped up rather than focused on like someone beating you or anything like that. Like you just all want to do really cool things together. Oh, and I, I think, yeah. Yeah, I, I love that feeling. Yeah, your your inspiration is ignited yeah. by, by your friends and seeing them do new stuff. Like that's with music and comics. When I see my friends doing new projects, I'm like, oh man, that's awesome. You know, I got to, you know, up yeah. my game now. And, and exactly. just kind of pushing for stronger things. So what is, sorry, what's the book at QuirkBooks? Oh, they don't, I'm not allowed to oh, tell the title talk yet. About it. Yeah. Okay, I can but, talk about the book. I just can't tell the title, okay. which is weird. No, all right. <laughs> That's right. usually the opposite well, give us of what a little I bit of do. something. We were talking about just sort of like yeah. the history and like. Um, so basically, it's going to focus on uh, 10 different female characters from each decade. So, my big thing is that I'm trying to find the weirdest ones, the most obscure ones that people have just never heard of and promote them. And then just talk about how either they were resisting trends of the industry or how they were kind of like showcasing them. So, you know, there's some bad comics in there. There's like some TNA comics that I wasn't a huge fan of. But that's what the reality was in the 90s. Um, and then there's some like cool comics in the 80s, like stuff you see John Keith Snyder doing in fashion action and other comics like that. In the 1940s, that's when you get the best stuff. In the 1940s, just like women-led comics were just reigning supreme. And they were super popular. I mean, there was Wonder Woman, of course, but there was Sheena, Queen of the Jungle. And there was like these really cool like female private eyes who were just like tough and sassy and newspaper reporters and people like a lot of women read them. And like, you know, the percentage was really high and different genres. The percentage of female readership was actually higher than male a lot of times, especially in romance comics. So I don't know if we'll ever reach that kind of saturation again because comics were accessible on the newsstands. And because genres and comics were being made specifically for women as well. So that's that's a huge thing. And when they left the newsstands, when they went direct to market, which I'm starting to understand better why that was the case. At first, I was always angry because I'm like, this makes it non-accessible. But from a financial standpoint, they had to. Uh, they went into comic book stores in like the 1970s, 1980s. And suddenly you would have to go into these weird, dark, underground dungeons to get your comics. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so... Uh, the other shops. Surprisingly, female readership uh, started to drop off yeah, a lot. Yeah, I know. Imagine that. Yeah. Imagine that. I and, was... yeah, romance comics, like, basically completely disappeared. Yeah. And that was a huge genre for women. Yeah, those those dungeon-y, yeah. unwelcome... I mean, I don't like going to those places. No. And, and the... you don't want to go somewhere. It's just like, this place sucks. Yeah. Like, it's dirty and dingy, and I don't need my comics that bad. I mean, when I was, like, 13, maybe, I was like, it's the only place that has this yeah. web of Spider-Man issue I need, you know? Number four. <laughs> and that's the thing. And, and women would still go into those. And, like, so it never was a complete lack of women readership in comics, ever, ever. It was less, for sure. But those hardcore fans, like, I meet them in conventions, ones who've, like, you know, pushed through that or who, like, found their own groups and, you know, found ways to make themselves comfortable. And that's a huge thing. Like, Trina Robbins, like, super, super enthusiastic about comics and always has been, but she's frustrated with the sexism in the industry. And the sexism is still there. I mean, web comics and independent comics and graphic novels have never been more popular. And those are genres that are kind of dominated by women, which are really cool. Female creators. Which that is the first thing that's happened. Even in the 1940s, there wasn't a great deal of nine, like female creators. Mm-hmm. So I can see that changing, and that'll definitely be a huge thing that's only going to get better. 
but even now like it's great to see like even in the last like year or two I've just seen like there's an abundance and it's just great and I don't know if that's retroactively from well maybe 15 years ago or 10 years ago like what sparked maybe their imaginations and got them back into comics or why there was a shortage in the 80s and why there's more now like you know what it's just it's really boring it's all about distribution and formats you get it more accessible to people and yeah if you put women on the same kind of playing ground as men you're gonna have a lot more creators that's it I know you've talked about this <laughs> at length before. You give speeches, you talk, and you I do, yeah. Travel, I'm starting so. to get, um, I wouldn't say tired, but yeah. I've started to notice in the last year that I'm only getting invited to women on comic panels. Yeah. And I'm like, hey, guys, yeah. did you remember I'm a historian? Yeah. Well, I didn't want to make this all about the whole, you know. This, <laughs> no, no, yeah, I know. Yeah. But, uh, just, but uh, it happens. It is something I'm very yeah. passionate about. And I love doing women on comics panels. I just also love doing other panels as well. I yeah. love doing things on the business side of comics, about distribution, about history about Kickstarter, small press, prairie comics, indigenous representation. All of that are huge, huge passions of mine. And I've started to to notice that people are saying, oh, you're the one who talks about, about chicks. You can go you can go sit over there in the women's section. No, no. So yeah, uh, comics for women, they're getting better, but they're not great. I wouldn't want to pat ourselves on the back just yet. Cool. Well, let's talk about more about what you do love about comics. Like what is what are the big things that you love? What I love about comics, uh, a lot of it's the melodrama. I love serial storytelling. I love that idea of getting to the last page and being like, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen with the vision in Scarlet Witch? I saw the artwork you had up there, and that's that was probably one of my favorite series, um, yeah, especially I when I was younger. Drawing. For the viewer, for the listeners at home, that's the vision driving a car behind the wheel, and Scarlet Witch is, is leaning on his shoulder. But what to me is hilarious is they both have the ability to fly, yet they're <laughs> They're driving, but that was when they were suburban. Yeah. They had a house in like uh, the suburbs, yeah. and they had neighbors. And Wanda would invite the local teenager over for witch lessons. Uh, that was a great miniseries. Yeah. That was like the pinnacle of comics to me is the Vision Scarlet Witch miniseries. Yeah, but yeah, the melodrama. There is a real art to a last page that yeah. hooks you. Whatever genre of comic you're reading, if you get to that last page, you're like, what is going on? Whether I'm reading like minimum wage or Spider-Man or anything. Serial storytelling is so difficult in a lot of ways because you have to have a a issue that'll have a beginning, middle and end in the issue. It also needs to be part of an arc usually, unless it's a a standalone um, issue or story where you're going to have to do a beginning and middle and end of the arc itself. And then of course there's the series itself, which has to have the ability to keep going. So you can't really make any changes that are going to, you know, if you kill off your main character, you pretty much are killing off your series unless you like have a good hook to bring them back pretty soon. So serial storytelling is super, super hard. And, you know, I was a huge fan of the melodrama in comics and I still am. And I was definitely a huge fan of serial storytelling, but I do find myself shifting more to graphic novels and trades, especially graphic novels, because trades, you do kind of get that weird feeling where you can see it end each issue on like a cliffhanger then. So it's, it's very jumpy, but with stories designed all as one long story, you don't have the kind of disconnect. Yeah. So I love serial storytelling, but I also love graphic novels for different reasons. What are your favorite parts of the fandom? A fandom? I love being able to geek out with people about how hot different ElfQuest characters are. <laughs> like, that's huge. Uh, like, not that specific thing, but, like, just getting able to talk to people and, like, talk about Vision Scarlet Witch and how much we love it and getting that feeling of being allowed to be excited. 
is a huge thing because you don't really get that walking around. Like people, if you go into a store and you're like, man, I love this pack of gum. This gum is the best. It tastes so good. It's my favorite. <laughs> yeah. People don't accept that. But if you say that about a comic or a video game, you'll get that response back and you'll get to be authentically, incredibly overjoyed and excited with someone else. And that's amazing. Okay, so with everything you've been pushing forward and bringing up with Bedside Press and everything, and do you feel any kind of pressure now to find the next Canadian character or story or artist that hasn't been given proper exposure, maybe? Yeah, uh, with the archival stuff, that comes up a lot because I want to keep doing archival works, but I haven't found any characters that are that good. After Nelvan and Brock Windsor, I'm like, well, these ones are the cream of the crop. Do I want to do a character like Wing or Nitro or Polka Dot Pirate where they're okay. Who is the Polka Dot Pirate? <laughs> well, she dresses up uh, with a mask on and a Polka Dot blouse and she beats up pirates. That's that's her superhero. And thing. she herself is a pirate. I don't think so, but she I can't be a hundred. I think she just fights pirates. I would have to double check that's on that. That's interesting. Because I've only read a few of her adventures. That's just like, like if swing. you stopped murderers, you were the... I'm the stop murderer. <laughs> There's so many great Canadian comics creators that, like, I think of Bernie Moreau or, uh, like, from the Reed Fleming, World's Greatest Milkman. Yeah. Um, by, uh, or Neil the Horse by David Boswell. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So comics like that where they, I don't know that they ever reached the, the full potential of their audience, like even within Canada, you could say read Fleming to people and people won't know what you're talking about. Yeah, although they are making a movie of that, I'm pretty oh, sure. Oh, really? Yeah, I can't remember if it's a documentary or a feature film though, but I do. I was talking to a company that wanted me to hire me as a researcher, but not pay me. <laughs> so I said no. Um, but there is someone working on something like regards to that. And IDW did a reprint of uh, Reed Fleming, The World's Greatest Milkman. It's like a full collection. So hopefully that's getting recognition but cool i just i really encourage everyone if they have uh if they have some weird part of pop culture that they know a lot about and they get frustrated that other people don't know about it tell them talk to everyone just like put a lot of push into it and people want to know about weird things like i share my weird female characters that i hear about all the time on twitter people love it because like they people love learning about new things that they wouldn't be able to discover otherwise yeah yeah, so share your passions. Share your passions. Cool. And you've got the Quirk Books thing coming out. Yeah. You've got Angel Catbird, yep. Bedside Press. If people want to check out your website, what's uh, the address? Yeah, just go to hopenicholson.com or bedsidepress.com. Same website. Thanks so much for coming by. I know <laughs> you're super busy doing all this stuff. Super busy. Super busy. And you took the time. I was at when I came. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, no, this has been amazing. So thanks a lot, Hope. Life is... Especially hard, but no one trusts you with a credit card. I love the taste of cereal. I have it for almost every meal. Five people to a tea bag. Well, I've never really got that bad. Not while we still had. DC Comics and Chocolate Milkshake. Some things will always be great. DC Comics and Chocolate Even though I'm 28 DC Comics and Chocolate I guess I'm just developing lame DC Comics and Chocolate I never got over that amazing taste 
what they meant. Peter Pan syndrome and arrested development. Now I've been working since I was ten, but the money's always gone by the weekend. Delivering post to serving beer. I've never had much of a career. So I made sure I was always near. Comics and chocolate milkshake. Some things will always be great. DC Comics and chocolate milkshake. Even though I'm 28. DC Comics and chocolate milkshake. I guess I'm just developing late. DC Comics and chocolate milkshake. I never got over that amazing taste. of the Modern Superior Media Network.